Well, this morning we're turning to a new place in our Bibles. Uh, it's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament, but we are turning to the book of 2 Kings. Uh, I want to be spend a little bit of time as we start this this morning to give you a little context for where we are and, and particularly why 2 Kings. We'll be spending a few months working our way through the entire book. As you're turning there... Uh, If you've been with us for a while, you know that this has been kind of a pattern for us as a church. We've done a New Testament book and then jumped back into the Old Testament and picked up where we left off. I went back and looked at my notes this week, and it was January of 2014 that we started Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. So we've been slowly working our way through the Old Testament chronologically, jumping into the New Testament usually at the end of each Old Testament book. But we've been doing that for eight years. And if you've been with us across that time, then you've seen us work through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. And now we pick up where we left off uh, some time ago, the beginning of 2 Kings. As we've done that, we've also been jumping into the New Testament, as I mentioned. So over those eight years, we've, been in, we've done Mark's Gospel. Uh, last year, year, you know, we spent the entire year in the Gospel of John. We've worked through the book of Acts and Romans, Revelation, 1 Corinthians, Philippians. So in the last eight years, we've gone almost through 20 books. Second Kings will be our 20th book that we've worked through, uh, which is pretty remarkable. So uh, number one, I owe you a thanks for being willing to slog your way through Leviticus for all those weeks and keep the ball rolling. And I'm really excited about Second Kings. Uh, it will take a little bit of work to set it back up. It's been a while since we dropped, left off in First Kings. But the question before we do I want to ask is, Why so much Old Testament? Um, We've really done, in many ways, more Old Testament probably in these eight years than maybe I got all through church growing up, certainly in a more deliberate way. So why so much of an attention on these Old Testament books? Why this chronological approach to the Old Testament? I want to give you a few answers to that question that I think is important to understand what we're doing in 2 Kings as well. First, and it's a really practical reason to start off with, If you want to really understand Jesus in the New Testament, not just casually or ideas, if you want to really understand, like we did in the Gospel of John or Mark, what Jesus is doing and saying, you can't honestly do that without understanding the storyline and the texts of the Old Testament. The New Testament is obviously set in the context and the storyline of the Old Testament. They flow one after another. But the New Testament authors, Jesus himself, are constantly drawing illusions and images from the Old Testament. As I pointed out many times in John's Gospel, they assume that you know the Old Testament well enough to know that they could drop a phrase or an image and you understand the full context around it. So if you're really going to understand who Jesus is and what he's saying and what he's doing, it's assumed you have some sort of knowledge of the Old Testament. So in a really practical sense, we've been doing this because I want you to understand Jesus better by understanding the world that he is set in the context of, which are these Old Testament scriptures. The second reason is, when the New Testament calls us to read and study scripture, to build our lives on scripture, the church in the New Testament was referring to the Old Testament texts. The New Testament church, even as they received Jesus and understood Jesus as Savior, still centered their worship around the scriptures they had, the Old Testament. So when it makes appeals to the power of Scripture and the place, the centrality of Scripture, the Old Testament for them was that Scripture and certainly for us remains to be as well too. If you really want to be a sort of New Testament first century church, it means taking those Scriptures, the Old Testament, seriously as well. 
Number three, the Old Testament makes very important points about human nature and the significance of sin. Jesus came to do what we could not do. But to understand what we couldn't do is to understand really the message of the Old Testament, this painful, long struggle of God's people to remain faithful to him, and this increasing reality of how deep and destructive sin actually is. A lot of what we've been doing in this time together through the Old Testament is looking long and hard at how broken humanity is and the desperate need we have for someone who can do what we can't. Uh, One of the ways I like to say that to you is you'll never understand how good the gospel is, how good God's grace is, until you understand how bad this sin condition is, how bad the sin within us is. And certainly the Old Testament is one of the great tools for us understanding the reality of broken human nature. Uh, Number four, the Old Testament also begins the revelation of who God is. Jesus is certainly the fullest and final revelation of God to man. But God begins Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created. He begins all through this Old Testament to reveal who he is, his character and his nature. If you want a whole picture of God, certainly that incorporates Jesus, but it also incorporates all that he had been saying and doing with this people throughout the Old Testament. Um, If I had to sum all that up, let me use Jesus's words. Jesus himself said on one occasion, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Those scriptures, Moses, the author of the Torah, the first five books, the prophets and scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament text, Jesus stood himself in his own ministry, opened the Old Testament, and from beginning to end explained how it was pointing to him. So the gift of the Old Testament for us is it exposes who we are, and it helps us better understand the anticipation and the fulfillment of who Jesus is and what he does. We better understand the whole story of the Bible, We understand that the church has long placed these passages at the center of their worship, Christian worship. It tells us about our sin nature, about God's character, and ultimately it helps us better understand Christ. So, a little side note this morning to remind you why these texts, even some of the maybe more obscure ones like 2 Kings, I doubt many of you have set up, you know, deep devotionals, you've done monthly readings of 2 Kings, I've dedicated the last year to 2 Kings, probably not been the case for many of you, uh, but I hope in our time together through it, you'll see the significance of it, and it does all of those things. Last sort of introductory point before we jump into chapter 1. I want to remind you of where we are because to jump into 2 Kings is to jump into really the middle of the story. 1 Kings and 2 Kings were originally one document. They weren't written by the author as two separate books. He didn't finish one and then a few years later finish the other. They're really meant to be read from start to finish. It has more to do with the management of scroll lengths and how things came into books that we created 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. When we start 2 Kings chapter 1, you're jumping into the middle of what was originally one long reading. 1 Kings, if you go back to what we did some time ago, begins with the transition of David to his son Solomon. Of course, 1 and 2 Samuel tell the stories of the rising kingdom. So Saul becomes the first king, then David. The beginning of 1 Kings highlights that transition from David as king to Solomon as king. 
And we learn in the beginning of 1 Kings this storyline of Solomon, the accomplishments of Solomon, the way he built the temple and continued to expand on Jerusalem. But we also see at the beginning of 1 Kings how Solomon began to incorporate the worship of other gods, the masses of wealth, and the raising of armies. And we begin to see this divide, the consequences of these actions. The result of Solomon's decisions is that the nation of Israel, united under Saul and David and Solomon, fractures into two kingdoms. It's really important to get this point because otherwise it might be confusing as you read. In 2 Kings, we're now in a situation where Israel was divided into two nations, a northern kingdom known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. So at times you'll read about the nation of Israel, which here is referring to the northern half, the kingdom of Judah, which is referring to this southern half, this divide. We saw that split in 1 Kings under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and we're still very much in 2 Kings in the world of these two divided kingdoms. You end up in the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings really reading through a narration of the kings that made up these two kingdoms. And what the author seems to be doing is giving us a kind of list of inventories. How well the king did, how faithful the king was to to Israel, or how the idolatry of false worship worked itself into the kingdom during his rule. Broadly speaking, what you will find is that the kings go wrong. And they continue to grow worse and worse in their idolatry and all of the complicated and painful realizations that come with it. First Kings opens really with this remarkable image of Solomon, the high point of Israel's history, the wealth, the significance of Jerusalem, the temple's construction. But as we work our way to the end of Second Kings, you will find Israel fractured, their worship divided, increasingly more and more pagan worship. And finally, by the end, the conquest and capture of Jerusalem as Israel is led out into exile and removed from the land and place. The question between those opening images, the greatness of Israel, and that closing image, the destruction, is the question, what went so wrong and how did they fall so far? And certainly it's the attention we have to each of these kings that helps us answer that question. There is in the middle, though, of that listing of kings another feature We find there are prophets at work throughout these days, prophets who confront kings, who call out the sin that they see spreading, who call God's people back to faithfulness. Central to these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, are the two, they'll sound familiar, prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Where we pick up at the beginning of 2nd Kings, we're still right in the middle of Elijah's ministry before it will be handed off to Elisha. As we pick up in 2 Kings, we read of a conflict between the prophet Elijah and one of these kings, Ahaziah, who is ruling in this northern kingdom of Israel. And we get to see exactly what has been the case for much of 1 Kings and will be the kingdoms to come. This conflict between prophet and king. Ahaziah is the son of Ahab and Jezebel, familiar names to you. And so we see this conflict arising between God's spokesperson and the power, the desperation for power and control of one of these kings. All right, enough introduction for one Sunday, right? You've got all that. We're ready to go with 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1. I'm going to read through the entirety of the first chapter this morning. 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, And lay sick. 
So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is, because, is, there, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of his fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to acquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Second Kings chapter 1. Well, that's actually a pretty simple story if you break down the pieces of it. Ahaz is king of Israel, this northern kingdom with its capital now in Samaria. We learn that he is apparently seriously injured as he has fallen through the lattice or the floor of his palace and now lays bound to his bed, anticipating that these injuries are in fact severe. Desperate for relief and increasingly afraid of the coming outcome, Ahaziah sends out a delegate to go and inquire about his faith. 
Now, he sends them to the god of Ekron, Ekron being one of those five Philistine cities, so this being a Philistine pagan god who is named here as Baal Zebub. Um, Let me do a little side note for those of you who are into Bible trivia. This will not have really any impact on the sermon whatsoever, but you might find it interesting. Baal Zebub does not show up anywhere in Philistine archaeology or history. We don't know what who Baal Zebub was. Now, there is a famous Philistine god named Baal Zebul. If you translate those two names literally, Baal Zebub, the one that's here in the Bible, literally means the god of flies or insects. Baal Zebul means the god most high or the highest god. So probably what you have going on in this passage is the Israelite authors actually poking fun at the Philistine god. They're using a pun as a way of denigrating the Philistine god and not giving him this profound title of highest god, but instead choosing to refer to him as a god of insects, a god of flies. Like I said, has no impact on the sermon, but for what it's worth, I read commentaries all week, so this is what you get if you're interested in it. So these emissaries set out, but they are intercepted before they can get to this city of Ekron, this Philistine god and his prophets. They're encountered by this prophet, Elijah, who informs them that because Ahaziah is searching for answers from pagan gods, as if he has no god, as if Israel's god does not have answers, that in fact he will not survive, nor will he leave the bed that he is currently laying in. The king obviously doesn't appreciate this answer, and so he sends out a detachment of soldiers to bring Elijah in for questioning. Twice this happens, and twice those detachments are consumed by fire. By the third time, the king sends out 50 men with its leader. This one takes a different approach, falls on his knees, and pleads with Elijah to be spared. God speaks, and Elijah goes with the man. And as he arrives before Ahaziah, what does he say? He says the exact same thing that's been repeated from the beginning of the story. Because you did not trust Israel's God or inquire of him, you will not leave the bed that you have been in. And it ends this story with the abrupt and simple note, and so that's exactly what happened. The first thing that struck me about this passage is how much repetition is in this chapter. I don't know if you felt that way. This is the kind of thing that I imagine, as you probably read on your own, you just imagine is the way the Old Testament stories sound, right? They say the same thing over and over and over. How many times do we read this message, you will not leave the bed because you have inquired of Baal's above instead of the God of Israel? The whole chapter in so many ways is really just the same three or four things over and over and over. Everyone repeats themselves. The king keeps sending out orders. The soldiers keep demanding Elijah come down. Fire continues to fall. And Elijah keeps responding the exact same words, the exact same prophecy. The story basically ends with exactly the same message that opened the story. If they just listened, maybe the whole story wouldn't have been needed. But instead, you get this repetition and repetition and repetition. Like I said, it's easy to imagine this is just the way Old Testament stories sound, right? It sounds very Old Testament, kind of lose it. I don't understand what's going on here. Why are they saying the same thing over and over? But I actually think there's something very deliberate about the way this repetition, this repeating happens throughout this story. There is this one official who comes and does the one thing in the story that is not repeated. Every line, every phrase is repeated except for 
this one action, this one official who falls on his face and says, may our lives be precious in your sight. So what is the point of all of this repetition? First this, the king may be reduced to his bed, helpless, recognizing the oncoming of death, but he still imagines himself in control. He falls through the floor, the lattice, which to me strikes me as somewhat symbolic. This great king, this powerful king with his orders and his commands falls through the floor to become injured. But he still sees himself very much in charge of the situation. Every word he speaks in the story is a kind of demand, either an order or a question with its own kind of demand for an answer. Go, inquire of balls above. Why have you returned? What kind of man was he? From the very beginning, he sends out orders, dispatching troops, asking for questions, expecting answers. He is in charge of the story, particularly from his perspective, from beginning to end. Perhaps the only non-demanding word that he speaks, and also one of the few lines that isn't repeated, is his realization that it is Elijah. Ahaz certainly knew about Elijah and who he was. As the son of Ahab and Ezebel, he would have been keenly aware of the role Elijah had played in his father's life. But nothing breaks his resolve. No amount of his own pain or disability or the presence of a prophet that he knows painfully is speaking for God and has proven himself to be God's spokesperson before. Nothing breaks Ahaziah's grasp on control and power. The men he sends out seem to echo this kind of demand. They have inherited this authority from the man of authority, and they make their demands just like the king above them. They approach Elijah, opening with their own demands. O man of God, the king says, come down. The second adds, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. One appeals to authority, the next tax on speed. Not only will you do it, you will do it now, the moment that it is demanded of you. What you get in these men, these emissaries of this king and the king himself, is an image of raw power. They are there to make demands, and they expect those demands to be fulfilled, to be carried out. They refer to Elijah as a man of God, but you can't help hearing how empty and ironic those words sound. They are not interested in the God that this man represents. They are interested in the power, the authority of the king they represent. Their commands leave no room for God or what God might be doing, how Elijah might respond. They aren't listening nor interested in answers. They are there to take charge, to execute orders, to fulfill the demands made of them, even if it means threatening a prophet. But the other thing this repetition does is it exposes the limits of that power, their ability to actually do the things that they repeatedly demand and expect. They go on repeating themselves. How ironic, Ahaziah sending out one detachment, a second detachment, a third detachment, the same numbers over and over, expecting somehow it would be different the second or third time. But each time they issue orders and execute their power, it doesn't work. Elijah doesn't put up his own army, doesn't counter with 50 prophets of his own. He simply says, if I am a man of God, let fire fall from heaven. And each time it does. 
The image we get of this repetition is increasingly how weak and desperate and incapable these men and their king actually are. I was thinking this week reading through this passage like so many of you are and I think few of us could keep from the situation in Ukraine and Russia. How in so many ways over the last couple weeks we have seen put on full display what raw human power can look like. So many in the world have been shocked and taken aback by it. Most of us had imagined that we lived in an age where such naked and raw aggression was no longer possible. That somehow as humans in this 21st century we had progressed beyond it, evolved beyond it. But Putin's exercise of raw military and political power exposes what has long been in the human heart. The Secretary General of NATO explained in a press release a week ago, Peace in our continent has been shattered. We now have war in Europe, and on a scale and a type we thought belonged to history. But it didn't, in fact. It was here. It's a part of us now, in this moment. The problem is that this dependence on human power is not something that we relegate to the past, something that we somehow evolve ourselves out of, something that we grow beyond or fix. Here it is in Ahaziah, desperation, control, he will have his way by his own power. We see it in our own day, in our own world. Was it not this same clutching for power that also moved men like Pilate to mock Jesus and his silence, or leaders like Nero in church history to burn Christians at the stake? This idea that with human will and human power, with soldiers and commands and military might, we can control, can make our own way, can prove what we would have. But Ahaziah's story is a reminder These rulers, with their attempts at power and dominance and control and aggression, do not always get away with it. This repetition that plays out in this story is, in my mind, a kind of repetition of human nature itself. The same desperate moves for power, but ultimately exposed throughout history as incapable of delivering. No matter how powerful they may seem, no matter how definitive, bombastic the speech We fall through lattices. We lay helpless in bed. We send out orders and commands, but in the end, those who look back at the story see how little control we actually possess. We clutch at it. We're desperate for it. But Ahaziah's story reminds us that ultimately one word of the prophet of God is enough to call down fire. Ahaziah reminds us that it is all a desperate repeating of what has been proven over and over to be hopeless, the repetitive attempts of human nature. I want to be careful not to sound naive. I know that in our own day there are very real consequences, as there were in 2 Kings and all of these stories. People that perished, people that fell under the sword, the conflict that these men of power demanded— as we see in our own day, the innocent children and civilians who will pay the, the price, the cost, for this power grab that so many make. But I think what this story helps remind us is that we should not be terrified or shaken by such displays, as if somehow this was something new. God still speaks, as he did in Second and First Kings, exposing these kings for all of history to see, He does in our own day. The way of human pride 
and power ultimately does not deliver. I actually think it's this knowledge, this lesson that we get from places like Ahaziah, that helps men like Elijah in this story but ourselves stand up and resist and speak, no longer out of fear but out of the truth and the reality of what we have in this message and hope of God. Notice Elijah in this story. He's not desperate to protect his own life. He resists, but when God says go, he goes. He's not desperate for control of the situation. He doesn't seem afraid nor intimidated. He seems in the midst of this constant repetition to be clear-minded and undeterred. He answers to God. When God says go, he goes. When God says stay, he stays. His attention is only on God, what God would have him do in that moment. I was reading through, as I mentioned before, some commentaries this week on Second Kings, and I was particularly struck, as I think you'll see why, on one of the stories that a commentator offered for this passage of Scripture. He wrote of a man named Cornelius Martins as an example of what we read in this story of Ahaziah. The commentator writes, Martins, a Baptist preacher in the 1920s in the Soviet Union, was once taken to the office of the local Communist Party boss, apparently for interrogation. The party boss ordered the two men to strip Martins of his clothes, but Martins told them not to trouble themselves, that he would undress, adding, I do not fear to die, for I shall be going home to the Lord. If he has decided my hour hasn't come, you can't do any harm to me here anyway. This last remark drove the party boss into rage. I'll prove to you that your God will not deliver you out of my hands. He lifted his revolver to drop Martins in his tracks, but his finger froze on the trigger. Three times he tried to fire and failed. His face grew red, his body began to shake, he looked ready for a coronary episode. At last he lowered the gun and asked a lesser official what Martins was condemned for. The official answered, he is a Baptist, can't you see God is fighting for him? The boss ordered Martins to get out and stay away. A powerful story, but here's how the commentator concludes it. Does that usually happen? No. The blood of God's servants ran deep in the Soviet gulags where they were mashed without pity. But sometimes, in the midst of it all, the Lord of the church gives the power grabbers of this age a sign of how abysmally helpless they actually are. That fuels the holy defiance of God's servants, for it shows them again that the words of God will have free course, and none of the puny, piddly, royal Ahaziahs of this age can stop it. I found myself really moved by that story. At times, we suffer. Christians have long found themselves persecuted, paying the price for the faith that they hold to. But there are times when God, by his sovereignty, exposes the power of this world for what it is, a helpless repetition. It doesn't always happen that evil gets what's coming to it in this life or as quickly as we would like it. But be sure, there is no act which goes unrecorded, that there is a day of judgment coming when all will stand before him. And perhaps it is a kind of grace, though hard to see. The lesson of this chapter is that there are not just simply good guys and bad guys, that the good guys win and the bad guys always get humiliated and lose. 
that we are the good guys, obviously, and they are the bad guys that will get exposed. The reality is you probably aren't Ahaziah in this story. None of you rule nations or command armies or issue out royal orders. But it's also true most of us are probably not Elijah. Few of us have faced off with hundreds of prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven and spoken the words of God. I think most of us are more like this third official, leading 50 men. That feels more reasonable, kind of like this congregation. A man caught in the middle of all of this conflict. A man not quite sure how to act, knowing and recognizing the power of God, but finding himself under the rule of a mad and power-hungry king. He finds himself thrust into the difficulty of a moment in which he must choose. Risking disobedience, he comes not with a command, a demand that Elijah follow, but instead falls before this man of God and says, let my life and those I am responsible for be precious in your sight. In so many ways, that really is the center of this story, both by the number of verses on each side of it, but also the thing that changes, the one thing that goes unrepeated, that someone in the midst of the story was willing to bow their knees and recognize what God might be doing to humble themselves, to set aside their own demand, and instead lay their life before him. It breaks the cycle of the story and invites Elijah to act in a way by God's leading that he hadn't up until that point. I want to suggest to you that as we live in our own difficult and complex days, struggling with the power above us, the reality of the God that so far may not have acted as we see fit, As we find ourselves with difficult decisions to make, where to speak, where to resist, where to be silent, where to obey, there is nothing more critical than this image of bowing before God in surrender. You cannot approach God out of position, out of power, out of wealth, out of talent. It makes no difference if you're a soldier under this man, or this man under the king, or the king himself. The power and position and possessions makes no difference in this story. The only thing that matters is this humble submission before God. It is the fundamental reality of this story, the truth that breaks the repetition from 2 Kings all the way through to our own day. We can colonize Mars with rockets. We can learn to customize the human genome We can innovate new clean technologies that will save the world or carry a universe of information with an answer to every question in your pocket. But the reality is there is nothing that cures the human heart but surrender to God. The philosopher John Gray wrote, According to scripture, in the most vital areas of human life, there can be no real progress, only an unending struggle with our own human nature. I want to close with this this morning. In the early days of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave a message. Many of you know he was a professor at Oxford University, and he spoke to a group of young men at Oxford, 1939. He understood very clearly that most of them would be engaged in this great moment of history, World War II. Lewis himself, having fought in the trenches of World War I, was not under any illusions about what awaited many of them. He was clear-eyed. And so Lewis, in this address to those young men in his day, said... 
I think it important to try to see the present calamity in true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil turn out on closer inspection to be full of crisis and alarms and difficulties and emergencies. So a later writer reflecting on Lewis's words concluded, what Lewis is saying here was not intended to be dismissive of the stark situation that all of them were facing. Rather, he was reminding them that every one of us lives each day in a world of uncertainty. Circumstances such as war or a pandemic do not create new reality. They simply bring the actual reality home more forcefully. The truth remains that whether our outward circumstances appear to be calm or whether we are being buffeted in the midst of a storm, we are still mortals living in a fallen world subject to numerous things apart from our control. I want to be really clear-eyed I want you to be free from fear, able to recognize the moment and be courageous in the midst of it. But to do that, you must recognize this human nature, this desperate clutch for power as what it is, an endless repetition of the human nature, sin. And that the only way to truly break it, the only way things are truly changed in this world, is a heart that humbles itself and submits to God. That action is the only thing that frees humans from this pattern of the world's repeated brokenness. It's what allows us to understand our own time and our own moment clearly. It's what frees us from the fear, the anxiety of the day we live in. It's what gives us the courage to face sin and evil with the kind of sobriety and courage that Elijah demonstrates, knowing that at times we are persecuted, at times we suffer the brokenness of this world ourselves, at times God, by his miraculous power, exposes the futility of it all. But in the end, he will finally have all before his judgment throne, that no act of man will be gotten away with, all of it exposed, all of it shown, and that we who recognize here and now that his kingdom is at hand, and that we enter it by humble submission, live in the midst of that kingdom, even as it is still to come. My prayer for this morning, and what I think we get from this story of Elijah and Ahaziah, is that my life would be like that of this leader of 50 servants, in the midst of a complicated, difficult, and what must have seemed to him like being the third man who was about to face fire from heaven, the difficult situation lays his self before this man of God and says, let my life be precious in your sight. God, my life is in your hands. And the complexity of this moment, not knowing what is to come, not knowing how to act in the midst of it, I want to hear what you are doing. I want my life to be protected by you. If you say go, I go. If you say stay, I stay. But at the end of the day, whatever I have and whatever I am, my hope is in your hands. We're going to take communion in a moment. I want to pray together and then we'll move into that time. If you would bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we know what it is to be in this situation like this man in this story. 
to have conflict raging around us, to see it on full display. And God, we know what it is to struggle with what to do, to feel like answers are hard to come by. So we're grateful that at times you intervene into this history to show us what is actually true. That the power of this world, the destruction of this world, the leaders of this world are not ultimately in control. That you can expose it by a single word. That so much of what we see on display around us is this endlessly repeated cycle of sin and brokenness. And God, we want to be humble enough today to recognize that we are in on it as well. Our own sins, our own desperate clutches of power. Our armies may be smaller, but God, we use what's around us to try to exert our own control. So we pray this morning for your forgiveness. We pray that we could see this world for what it is, a hopeless, endless repetition of sin. And I pray that you would move our hearts to surrender more to you. That we would turn our attention to you and believe, even when it's difficult to see, that you were at work, that your kingdom is coming, that nothing is out of your sight, that nothing is gotten away with. God, we pray that you would come quickly, that you would bring an ultimate and eternal peace to this world, that you would put an end forever to conflict to war, to violence, that your kingdom would be here on earth, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And we pray that that would start with our own hearts and our own lives, that we would surrender them to you this morning. God, our lives are yours to command. We lay down our own will and our own agenda. Where you would have us to speak, give us the courage to do it. Where you would have us to resist, give us the courage to do it. Where you would have us face persecution and even death, God, give us the courage and the boldness to do it, knowing that this world does not have the final say. So we trust you this morning. We put our hope in you this morning. We lay our lives before you. Let these lives be precious in your sight. And let us be humbly submitted to you in all things. 